0: This is an email I got a few weeks ago. It reads, Last night at 12.58 a.m., three unidentified men on a motorcycle went behind our building, avoiding our security cameras, and lobbed two handmade grenades at our church and living quarters. There were loud explosions, flashes of light, and the grenades damaged windows, walls. Within 15 minutes, the police arrived, and they found one live hand grenade. Thankfully, none of our brothers were on the roof where the grenades had landed. The police forensic department had come and gathered whatever evidence they could. They said that had someone been in the proximity of the blast, it would have been fatal. Several senior police officers have come and are assuring us security. Of course, God is sovereign over everything and our true security is in him. We think that the men who did this were angry at the gospel work going on and are trying to scare us in order to stop us from doing what we are doing. These kinds of attacks from radical fanatic groups are increasingly common in our area. Of course, we will not stop doing what we are doing by God's grace. The Lord is at work in our church, and the gospel is going out. Last week, we had eight baptisms, and all of them were from Hindu and Muslim backgrounds. Pray that the Lord will be glorified through all this. We will appreciate your prayers. That letter was sent to me from a friend just a few weeks ago, and in receiving it, I prayed, and in fact we all prayed in in a pastoral prayer then, about these very events after the incident. But as I thought about the persecution that my friends are going through, I wondered how our faith would fare in such circumstances. It is, in fact, a a suffering and a persecution that many Christians now know and experience and many Christians throughout time have faced. In fact, the suffering, in fact, such suffering is the normal experience of the average Christian since the inception of the church. The Lord of the church was murdered. And his disciples were as well, at least 11 out of 12 of them were martyred and the one that was not died in exile now let's be clear just because one suffers for the faith does not automatically make one guilty or sorry it does not automatically make one more godly i think that's kind of the temptation here when you talk about people who are martyred for the faith all of a sudden it seems like they are the most godly folks ever which is not true i mean we ourselves we know a degree of freedom and that is by god's grace he's the one who determines the places and boundaries with which we are to live so he himself is graciously given the freedom we know now. We're supposed to use it wisely. But since persecution is the normal experience of the Christian in the New Testament and in general throughout Christian history, and in fact since Jesus said that he, his followers would be suffering and persecuted like him, it's going to help us strengthen our faith by looking at the hope that suffering Christians have and this helps us to strengthen our faith in case it ever becomes our experience and our calling to endure such suffering and persecution for the faith the sermon series here in first peter that we begin today is very much about suffering in fact the apostle peter wrote as a suffering christian to suffering christians and he wrote to them in order to remind them of the hope that they had in jesus christ the lord and savior and then to encourage them to stand firm in the faith as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For us today, Christian, I hope that we too come to a renewed hope. A hope not based in yourself, but based in what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in our Savior. So please turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. If you're using one of the church pew Bibles in front of you, you can be found on page 1014. That's page 1014 if you're using one of those black Bibles there in front of you. As Peter was writing this in the early 60s AD, Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And while widespread persecution had not yet erupted, uh, it wouldn't break out till the mid-60s. While it hadn't broken out yet, persecution was still very common. And uh, it's important to note that while these Christians were suffering, it was not for their lack of faith, but for their faith. They are suffering not because they lack faith, but because they indeed have faith. As Jesus' his disciples were told, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Of course, he's speaking of the general experience of the Christian. And if you look there at verse 6, let's just take verse 6. We're just going to get a background for what's going on here. We see there, he says there, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So clearly his, his, his hearers are going through trials. His readers are going through trials. And then in the, next, in the next chapter, it's clear that they're suffering unjustly. So Peter writes to them. He says, stand firm in the faith, trust in God, look to Christ and all of the blessings of salvation that you have in Him. And a verse that summarizes the book, really that summarizes the whole entire book, you can turn to 419. This is kind of the rising conclusion. Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Christian, perhaps you come today needing a renewed hope. Sure, maybe you don't suffer in the same ways that Peter did or his readers did here at this point in time. But maybe you've been talking to your loved ones about Jesus Christ and they now mock you. Maybe they ridicule you because you are a Christian. Maybe you have lost your reputation. Maybe your friends and your family have turned their backs on you. You've lost friends. Or maybe you look around and you think, okay, if I take a stand for Jesus Christ in my workplace, I might lose my job. And worse, as many Christians around the world now know this threat, they fear if they stand for Christ, they will lose their lives. As we hope and look forward to strengthening our own hope in jesus christ even though we might not be called to suffer in these same ways i pray that we come to a renewed hope the same type of hope that peter holds out here to these christians or you can think about it this way if you know someone who maybe will struggle and suffer or be mocked for their faith then friends you ought to know this secure hope because god's going to call you to minister to them from the very truths that we see here in 1 Peter. Friends, I pray that this sermon series, and more specifically this sermon this morning, helps us keep hope alive, even in the face of persecution. So let me go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-5. to five. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The question we want to ask here is, what can we do to keep hope alive? What can we do to keep hope alive? And the answer is, trust in God who keeps you. Trust in God who keeps you. We can keep hope alive by trusting in God who keeps you. So with that big idea in mind, this passage helps us understand the nature of Christian hope. He's writing to persecuted Christians who are going through difficult experience, and he holds out Christian hope for them. From our passage, we note four characteristics of Christian hope. Four characteristics of Christian hope. And then as we go through the passage, as we work through the points, I hope we too are moved to trust in God who loves and keeps his people. Let's look now at the first characteristic. The first characteristic of Christian hope Christian hope is grounded in God himself. This is point number one. Christian hope is hope grounded in God himself. In our day and age, we need to get this clear as there are many counterfeit hopes or counterfeit faiths that are running around. Here, the Bible says that that Christian hope is grounded in none other than God himself. Maybe Maybe the most common misunderstanding of faith and hope is that Christian faith is grounded on ourselves christian faith is grounded on ourselves it says hey you know if you're having a hard time believe in yourself if you just have enough faith if you just keep on if you keep your head held high you can conquer all the voices in your head you can overcome all of the suffering in your life do you hear what the good news is in that counterfeit faith that counterfeit hope that the the, the counterfeit faith here is based on the good news of positive affirmations I can do all things. I can, and indeed I will. Really, you are your own Savior. But Christian, hope is not dependent on you as sovereign, you as the Savior. If it was, then Peter, you would figure that he would begin his letter so differently. You look there at verse 3. That's kind of the beginning of the body of the letter. He says, blessed be God, the father of the one who suffers. Right, you figure if, if we are our savior, if we are the sovereign and really faith and hope are found in ourselves, then he would say, blessed are you. No, really, believe in it. Blessed are you for all these various reasons that you find in yourself. But he doesn't do that. He soars here for the Christian heart that's suffering. He soars. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, he says. Positive affirmation. Number one, God is over all. And here he's inviting readers, inviting the suffering Christian into his praise. It's really a call to redirect our lives and our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, to the one who delivers. You know, to the outside observer, if you're kind of exploring Christianity, figuring out what is this stuff about, you, you might think that Peter here is actually a weird guy with a strange message. I mean, why is he upholding the very truth that he suffers for i mean you might think he's a bit of a nut job just trying to convince people to follow let's say some cult that he had just created is he just trying to drum up hysteria amongst the people that are following him you know following after his lies well no peter according to the bible was an eyewitness of the crucified jesus christ he was there when christ died he was his disciple as Christ's ministry led up to his death. I mean, he was an eyewitness as part of what it means to be an apostle, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And then Christ charges him to build the foundation of the church along with all of the others. So he was there. He knew suffering both as he saw it happen to Jesus, but also in himself. So if you, look, if you go and read the book of Acts, you see there that, that uh, Peter was arrested, most likely on multiple occasions. And he was arrested for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only that, though, but scholars think that Peter was with Paul the Apostle in his Roman imprisonment. And then right before before he writes this letter, he's with Paul, and then he leaves, they depart, they separate ways, they go to different areas, uh, perhaps in Rome, and what happens is that eventually, as history tells us, that both Peter and Paul are beheaded. I, I find Peter to be such a fascinating character. You know, these are real men writing to real people. Right? You've got to keep that in mind here. This is not like some book of code law, all of it at least. These are real letters written by real people that God the Spirit uses to write the Word of God. But if you guys know Peter, you know that he wasn't always so bold to profess, Blessed be the God and God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you know Peter's story, you know that God had brought about great change in his life. If you guys remember... This is the guy who denied that he even knew the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he did so when a little girl spotted him and said, aren't you with him, the Savior guy? The guy that they're crucifying right now, and he denies Jesus three times. But yet here he is, a changed man, encouraging suffering Christians to stand firm. And firm he would be until he died a handful of years later. If you see the oddness of what he's doing here. In this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffers for the name of Christ, but yet he still lets the banner of Christ fly over his house. You know, I haven't faced much serious persecution. I mean, in junior high, uh, you know, I grew up with some friends who, and we were all uh, sons of immigrants. And I had some of my closest friends. One of them was a Muslim. The other one was a Buddhist. And, uh, you know, they would mock me for believing that Jesus is the son of God. You know, Muslims believe that he is not the son of God, not the God-man. He's just a prophet. Although, uh, you know, there's certain unique things about Jesus. And then my Buddhist friends, I mean, uh, you know, they would believe really that salvation comes from within. And so I remember in seventh grade getting conversations with my close Muslim friend, my close Buddhist friend. And they would just mock me that I would actually believe that Jesus is the God-man. And then in high school, as I was growing in my faith, you know, I, I definitely... Uh, wanted to grow closer to God, so I thought, okay, you know what? So one thing that I can do to help me think about God more during the day is I'm just going to write the word God on my hand. And so I go to school, and sure enough, it's those same friends who are mocking me, thinking, "Oh, how stupid! You're just an idiot. You think that you're going to do these types of things?" You know. And and then later on, that was that was high school. So you got junior high, you got a high school, and then uh, after I graduated high school, I started hanging around with uh, some other various friends. And at some point in time, I wanted to reach out to them, and perhaps the worst um experience of mine where i was mocked and maybe persecuted is i was sharing the gospel of jesus christ with one of my friends and he was so angry he was angry because he had witnessed his mom die a very hard death he was angry because he witnessed his father suffer even in the midst of that he was angry because his brother was doing life in prison he was angry because he himself had already gone to prison for something he legitimately com- committed and he was so angry at me telling him that he could have hope in Jesus and forgiveness of sins that he took out his 9mm, cocked it, and pressed it right in my forehead. And he said, PG version, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. I mean, how tempting is it to just sort of wind down the banner of Christ in the midst of suffering? And instead, maybe in the face of suffering, and face of persecution, Uh, put up the banner of lament or sorrow sorrow because in the face of persecution we lose our reputations we lose maybe safety and our security we lose maybe our jobs maybe our family maybe our relationships you see how strange peter is here and while some maybe some of us here might suffer. Right and then we crank up the banner of lament or sorrow in the face of persecution. I mean, we look next door and we see Peter, he's kind of cranking it back up. Like what gets a man to do that? What makes a Christian do that? Well, I think the answer is it's because the gain in the gospel is greater than anything else that can be lost for the gospel. Gain in the gospel is greater than anything that can be lost for the gospel for the person who is growing in christ trusting in christ leading on christ i mean this is the gain here that peter is holding out to these christians blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ well why is that according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again it is as if he says look i see your suffering now i want you to see your savior and your salvation. And so he greets them with grace and peace. If you look there in verse two, down there at the end, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He he greets them with God's grace. He greets them with God's peace. Interestingly enough, you know, they're going through suffering, but yet he holds out some sort of peace. And then now in verse three, he greets them with God's mercy. This mention of being born again here. It's a metaphor of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he's pointing our minds to here. There there are various metaphors for salvation used in Scripture like deliverance metaphors. There you have the word of salvation. You have economic metaphors, and so you have the word of ransom. You even have legal metaphors, so you have the word of justification or declared righteous. Here Peter uses renewal metaphors blessed be the god for father of the lord jesus christ because he has caused us to be born again you flip over to 123 you'll see he uses this word again 123 he says there you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of god the theological understanding here the fancy word for this is called regeneration where god by his spirit gives us soft hearts he removes our hearts of stone You know, when we're not believing in Jesus Christ. And then he puts in hearts of flesh and he causes us, it says in the Old Testament, he causes us to believe in God. He causes us to walk in his ways. So if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian and you're looking over, you're like, okay, this this, this woman, this girl, my friend who's brought me to church. So he's changed. Well, that's because he has been born again. God's spirit is changing his heart. He is becoming uh, is renewed. The reason why we all need to be removed or sorry not removed but renewed is because we are all sinners from the very beginning this is not the way it was god had created man to be in a relationship with him man rebelled against their creator and earned for themselves just condemnation and so now all men are born in sin and now all men actually sin they actually desire to go against god's law and in so doing they become gods unto themselves and where we, were to earn, where we had earned for ourselves just punishment and even wrath in hell, God chooses, by his divine grace and his love for sinners, rebels in his own kingdom, he chooses to give them new life. He lets them out of prison, so to speak. He gives them new life. Ephesians 2.8 puts it this way. But, uh, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, that is sinners, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So even where we deserve death, God in his mercy sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So he becomes our substitute. He takes our place. He bears the wrath that we deserve. Three days later, he gets up from the grave. We're going to talk about that more and what that means for our lives. And now he calls everybody to turn from their sin and believe on him. And those who do are born again. You see, for Peter, whatever suffering man had caused him, whatever man had done to him, this suffering is pushed to the background by what God had done for him. So if you're here today and you're experiencing suffering, and here we can kind of expand expand it to all sorts of suffering. But the suffering that man has done to Peter gets pushed to the background by what God had done for him. So suffering goes to the background, deliverance, salvation in God comes to the foreground. Gain in the gospel is greater than anything that can be lost for the gospel. Friends, I wonder if you believe that. If you are a Christian, do you really believe that gain in the gospel, salvation because of the gospel, is greater than anything, any earthly thing that can be lost for the gospel in everyday life you know i think we all understand that one way we show that we value something or one way that we know something is valuable is whether or not we are willing to suffer for it i catch a grenade for you throw my hand on a blade for you if we're willing to accept suffering we say to the world there is great gain with this thing with this human being and this relationship with my stuff. Right? And so therefore we're willing to suffer for it. So for Peter, gain in the gospel is greater than anything that can be lost for the gospel. And this is why he reminds them, discouraged, these suffering Christians, depressed, that there is great gain. But what's highlighted here is not only that we have been born again, but what we've been born to. Not only that, we've been born again, but what we've been born to. You just imagine a baby, right? A baby is born into the world, an ideal situation, born to parents that love him, ideally. A society that is good, ideally. You know, he gets to experience this life here. We're born into a realm. Well, so it is with these Christians. And what Peter's going to do is he's going to look at all the ways, all the things that ought to be appreciated in the gain. Three different ways of talking about the gain. That's what he's going to move on to. Um... I like watching documentaries, and, so, and sometimes I like watching documentaries about people who get let out of jail because you get to see things from their perspective as they get back into society. Now, certainly sometimes it's difficult as they go back into society, but you know, sometimes these documentaries, they focus on not only the fact that they are going to be released, but their experience in the, in the new sphere – the gain of being let out, of being pardoned, of being set free. And so when they come out, they, they oftentimes are saying, this is real air. Even though, of course, the air is, you know, the, the ontologically the air is exactly the same. If they're in the courtyard, whether or not they're in the courtyard or outside. But there's this different sense here that they get to experience. They see the sun in a different way. Maybe they go on to enjoy their favorite food spot, as some of my own friends have done. And then eventually, you know, as they get home, as they go to see their family and friends, they get to celebrate all of that. That's the gain that we as Christians get to look at here, having been set free from our sin. Peter here, he says, let's look at this gain one by one by one. This is what Peter does in the first five verses. He actually starts even in the beginning. Look there, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion that is these christians have been scattered in this area that is now known as turkey pontus galatia cappadocia asian and bithynia and then look here he talks about all this kind of seemingly unfamiliar language or unfamiliar if you don't know what's going on here uh foreknowledge of god the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to jesus christ and for sprinkling with his blood now what he is doing here is he's actually reaching back to the experience of Old Testament followers of God. So what happened in the Old Testament there is that God had come alongside of them and chosen them. He had foreknown them. He had set his love upon them. This is what it means to think about the foreknowledge of God, according to the foreknowledge of God. It's not only that God knows what's going to happen in the future, but God had come alongside his Old Testament people, the Hebrew people, and set his love upon them. He's saying, look, just as God did that in the Old Testament, so he's doing that still with the church. God has come alongside according to his foreknowledge, according to his covenant love. And then he goes on by the sanctification of the Spirit. we just finished the book of Exodus. And we know, too, that, that God in the Old Testament was forming himself a people holy unto his name. So he is doing now in the church. Sanctify, that is, set apart for God's special purposes, to be holy to his name. If you turn over to chapter... Let's go ahead and look there. Verse nine. You hear all this echoes of the Exodus, Old Testament Israel. He says, but you now here he's talking to Gentiles. That is non Jews and Jews. He's talking to a mixed church. He's saying you are the spiritual people of God, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy you hear that language of holy or set apart for god's special use i mean how encouraging that would have been for these christians to know once again to be reminded that look friends even though you suffer god is using you in ways that you might never know for his special purposes he has set apart the church for his own glory and then he says therefore obedience to jesus christ just as Old Testament Israel was to live according to the laws of the kingdom, so God's spiritual people, Jew and Gentile, are to live and obey King Jesus. And then he talks about for sprinkling with His blood. That is uh, for uh, this. This is a reference to salvation. It's a reference for conversion. The Old Testament in Israel, there they were sprinkled by the blood in a ceremony that depicted God's forgiveness. Here, he's reminding them that they are forgiven, that Christ bled and died for the church. Here, the Old Testament Israel, they are forebears as exiles, foreigners in a foreign country, facing difficulties and persecution as they wander to the promised land. The church today, you know, is made up of all nationalities, Jew and Gentile. They are, we are, elect exiles going from this land to the next. And maybe you even know, you experience the hostilities of standing for Jesus Christ, of following God, of being part of a church, of being a Christian. And so we, just as they, we need to know what is it like, what does it mean for us to keep hope alive. And here Peter points us back to what God, who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So for verse 3, what does some of this born-again life entail? Once again, just as a baby is born into a world, into a sphere, here Peter helps us look at what is the gain that is found in the gospel. And as we look here at the gain, as we look at the, the next three, or, or all of this gain in three different ways of speaking about it, he holds out our hope. And this brings us to our second characteristic of Christian hope. Second characteristic of Christian hope, it is a living and a real hope. It is a living and a real hope. Just, just to summarize here, what's going on in the structure of the passage <clears throat> He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. Now he's going to say what that is. It is to a living hope. And he's going to go on and say it is to an inheritance. Then he's going to conclude and say it is to a salvation. So we're going to look now at the first one. It is to a living hope. Verse three and verse, verse four. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Significant for the Christians, isn't it? Who were maybe facing a possible death sentence. Remember, Peter had suffered, and these Christians too are suffering. They walk in the same footsteps of Jesus Christ, Him crucified, but their hopes were not killed in the crucifixion. Their hopes were not killed in the crucifixion, but they were raised in the resurrection. You see how the Christian's hope here is bound up in Jesus Christ? It doesn't stay dead. But it rises with Jesus Christ. Though Peter saw Christ crucified three days later, he found the tomb empty because the Lord had risen. The link is clear. Our hope is living. Friends, it is active. It is vital because Jesus Christ himself is living, active, and vital. Had Christ stayed dead, though, our hopes would have been or remained dead. But because Christ rose from the dead, therefore our hopes rise with him. We see this very practically in the, in, the, in the Gospels as we follow the disciples. Christ is crucified. And then what are they doing in the in-between time? Right? They, they doubt whether or not he's even going to rise from the dead at all. They think that because their king has died, then there's no more hope for the kingdom. And so they're kind of moping. They're kind of sad. They're walking around. And, and uh, it is when Christ appears to them that their faith is reinvigorated. Their hopes don't stay dead, but they rise along with the resurrection. And why is it that our hopes are reinvigorated? It's because Christ's resurrection proved that he was the Son of God. The resurrection proved that everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus claimed, is indeed true. It showed that Christ had power over Satan, over sin, and over death. Because of his resurrection, the Bible says that Christians now have been raised to new life spiritually, where we share in every single heavenly blessing in Jesus Christ, right? It's like, we have latched ourselves to christ who is in heaven and so we experience the heavenly blessings in christ now and because of christ's resurrection it also guarantees that death will not have the last word in our lives because we too will be raised physically Christian, does the resurrection of jesus christ make hope live in your life and therefore, make make following Christ joyful, faithful, even in the midst of difficulties. I mean, this is what is supposed to happen when we latch on our, when we latch ourselves, our own souls, on to Jesus Christ. Imagine having a carabiner. For those of you who might go climbing, rock climbing, you have the little clips. We're supposed to take our clip and latch on to Christ, who is seated in the heavenly places. And therefore, we experience all the heavenly blessings in Jesus Christ because we are attached to Jesus Christ. This is what it's like for the the people in Scripture. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we who are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You guys ever know the experience of depression, discouragement. Here he's saying that he faced that reality. Indeed, he said, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on god who raises the dead you hear that he has latched himself onto jesus christ hoping in all the truths of god and so he is able to entrust himself emotionally in the fears the discouragement feeling the sentence of death he's able to entrust his physical state to god who raises the dead in first Thessalonians 4 you see there that paul has latched himself to god and in christ and he wants the church to do the same so he says there He says, look, I want you guys to grieve not as those who have no hope because the resurrection is real. So therefore we grieve as those who have a hope. And so he's able to entrust himself emotionally, physically, spiritually to God. So friends, to what is your hopes latched onto? What are you latched onto? Uh, If you want to know, I think a great way to know is to follow your despair. You follow your hopelessness you want to find out what you're latched on to, you follow your despair. Despair indicates uh, what you're going down with, right? If you've latched yourself onto something and that thing is going down, you're going down too and your despair tells you that you're going down. Really good indicator. Are you losing your marriage? Are you losing your retirement portfolio? Economists say that the uh, the market is going to crash if Donald Trump is elected president, so maybe you think that you are, maybe you're freaking out even right now, if that's who you want to win. Are you latched on to maybe your appearance? You can't stand the fact that maybe your health is going down the tube as we speak, and so you're so desperate. Maybe you're latched on to your ideal family, so frustrated, so discouraged that, Maybe you might be infertile. Have you latched on to your ideal career and you can't get the job that you so dreamed about? Maybe you've latched on to the school of your choice and you've gotten recently rejected. Maybe you've latched on to your own reputation. Maybe you've latched on to having lots and lots of friends and now they're turning themselves on you and so you feel so discouraged. You know, the way I imagine this to happen is, you know, we functionally worship so many different things and those things are what we latch ourselves on to. We take our carabiner, our safety harness, and we just... Hook it up. And I imagine Jesus, you know, returning and he wants to know where his disciples are. And he comes and asks us, you know, while, while, let's say we latch onto our appearance and we're at the gym. You know, we're running on the treadmill, we're sweating, and we got latched onto us this perfect image that we have assigned the status of Savior. And Christ comes, repent and believe. And we're like, no, I got it covered. Psh, look at this beautiful body. I'm latched onto that. Or another way of looking at it, Jesus Christ comes and he calls. Business people, working folks, men and women who, who idolize the work environment or money. And then we're so busy, we're so busy working, we're so busy doing all these busy things. And we say, oh, we don't have time for that I'm covered. I'm latched onto my work. Maybe we feel so desperate. We're so discouraged in our marriages, so discouraged because people might be cheating on us. Christ comes along and says, you find identity in me. He said, no, I got it covered if I can only just get this thing to work. You see, all those various things that we've latched on, Jesus is like, what in the world are you doing? Those things are taking you down. So friends, abandon ship and latch on to me. These things, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a believer. And if you are a Christian and you find yourself really tempted to latch on to all of these earthly things, this passage here calls us to latch on to the very things that Will save the very things that will deliver. Friends, do not hope in your marriage. Marriages can end. Don't hope in your money. Portfolios will crash and vanish. Don't hope in your body. It's going to sag. Don't hope in your children because they will turn on you. Don't hope in your job because at some point in time you will retire and then what? Don't hope in your mental ability because your mind will fade. Don't hope in your life because, friends, you too will die. Now, don't get me wrong, this does not mean that we should not appreciate all of these wonderful things that God gives us. We should appreciate health, we should appreciate children, we should appreciate money. We should appreciate marriage. We should appreciate mental ability. But all of those things have have been given to us so that we might exalt God Himself. Not that we might latch on to them and follow them wherever they lead us as if they are our gods, assigning to them Savior status. No, but we are to use them because we are to glorify the Savior, never counting on them as our Savior. So friends, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, you find yourself latched on things that are going down. Christ calls you to abandon ship and trust in him who always delivers and you can do that by repenting and believing and therefore no suffering in this earth will ever touch you in any way that will drag you down finally because your hope isn't on the stuff that perishes it's in Christ who has been raised from the dead so he calls you friends to repent of your sin and believe stop idolizing the things that are of the world and worship him alone who is the Lord and Savior. We've seen here that, number one, Christ, uh, the Christian hope, is grounded on God alone. We've seen also what this, what the gain is, a little bit of it. Number two, Christian hope is a, a living and a real hope, just because Christ got up from the dead. Really? We see, number three, that uh, Christian hope is of eternal and infinite value. Christian hope is of eternal and infinite value. Look there at verse four. Uh, keep in mind here the argument, Paul's argu- uh, Peter's argument, God has caused us to be born again We've already seen to a living hope. Now we see to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Interesting here that he doesn't state things positively. He states things negatively. It is imperishable. It cannot be. It cannot be this. It cannot be that. So if our previous point emphasized the reality of the things hoped in, this point here emphasizes the incorruptibility of what we hope in incorruptibility of what we hope in our living hope is spoken here of an inheritance language inheritance language shows up a lot in the bible whether it be the old testament the new testament for god's old testament people the inheritance was the promised land the land that god himself had set aside for his people to enjoy in the new testament this language here first peter is talking about this uh, inheritance language that is kept in heaven for you it's not a physical land it is kept in heaven and thinking about an inheritance here is supposed to anchor our hopes in what is future, in what is coming. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about what is coming. Listen to this in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. This should anticipate, or get our anticipation going here. God raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what he's done. Now listen to the purpose. It is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of, Of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He raises us up with Christ in order that he might shower upon us immeasurable riches. So we see here that the inheritance is ultimately in Jesus Christ and everything that comes along with Christ's salvation. I mean, again, this is is an encouragement. In the face of losing your own earthly things, in the face of a sagging body or whatever it is that you count valuable, This would have been a huge, huge encouragement to Peter's first readers, and it should be to us. It also should be a gentle rebuke to those who have latched on to earthly things, only to find them stolen away, only to find that they are going to fade, only to find that they are going to deteriorate. You know, American Christians in general have a reputation all over the world for placing our hope in money and material things. That, that's just kind of the reputation that uh, we ourselves have earned around the world. Compared to other countries, you know, we are a country of great plenty, of great greatness, of a lot of stuff. And many have made themselves dangerously, dangerously comfortable, either in their longing for earthly things or in their living with earthly things. A recent news report told the story of a North Korean Christian who had defected and he learned that american christians were praying for north korea's christians in the midst of their suffering and you know recently we've prayed for north korean christians there's been a report that came out that lists all the horrendous things that the governments that are doing that the government is doing state sponsored persecution is doing to christians and and this is what the north korean christian responded with i don't know what kind of attitude he responded with in. hopefully it would be a godly one Uh, one that emphasizes the reality that we have earned for ourselves a bad reputation he said well we pray for you too you have so much you put your faith in money and your freedom in north korea we have neither money nor freedom but we have christ and we have found he is sufficient do you feel that sting now while this might not describe you 100 percent accurately If you know yourselves well enough, it does describe yourselves at least a little bit, right? I mean, we come to the subject of persecution from a different starting point. We read about persecution, we hear about it, and you say, I can't believe what it'd be like to live in that. But they are born to a country with government-sponsored persecution, and say, well, I choose to live like this because I choose Christ. You see what a world of difference that is? We who enjoy this land often focus on the state of persecution, while they who are born into that land have moved on to focus on an all-sufficient Savior. Because what else is there if all their stuff is being taken away? If they're facing death and persecution and, and great ramifications if they choose Jesus Christ? But yet they say, We choose to live in this because we choose Jesus Christ. Many Christians in the U.S. are still getting over the fact that this world is corrupted. That it is actually defiled. And that all the glitz and glam offered here is fading away because this, in fact, is a sinful world. But folks who are born into the state of suffering are under no cloud of illusion that this world is not their home. And so they place their hope in what matters—that is, the all-sufficient Savior—and their response is naturally, "Why exactly would we want perishables, the defiled stuff of the inheritance, when we could have the incorruptible, the undefiled, and the unfading, waiting for us in Jesus Christ Himself and His kingdom?" This reminds me of the suffering Christians in the Book of Hebrews. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter ten, verse thirty-two. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. If you're unfamiliar with scripture, you can ask your neighbor to get you there. It's just a couple pages to the left, or maybe 20 pages to the left or so. Let me just start by reading 32. And just to give you a little bit of background here, he's talking about their situation. They, too, are suffering. And he says, but but recall the former days, verse 32 of chapter 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, as you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Pause right there. How is it again that a Christian can joyfully... Except the plundering of a property, the answer is in the rest. It says there. Let's keep on going. He says, "Since the reason is, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one." Preacher John Piper, he talks about here. This is future grace at work. This is trusting in God's future grace. To get them through this suffering, this persecution, this difficult situation. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that God's grace was going to come. That God actually was going to deliver them. And what's going on here in the book of Hebrews is going on there in 1 Peter. They know that they had a better and lasting possession. A city waiting for them, built not with human hands, but built built by God himself. Friends, you realize that in your suffering, you don't have to go through this type, same type of suffering to learn what it means to have this great hope. I hope you realize that now. God may not call us to suffer in the same ways. That's OK. Again, God is the one who determines the places and boundaries within which you live. So it's OK if we don't go through this same suffering. But friends, you know, suffering as well. You know what it looks like to, to, to find your hope in Christ alone. But in here, Peter holds out this hope for us a better and lasting possession an inheritance undefiled unfading imperishable kept in heaven for you did you see that there in the verse he says there that it's preserved for you when you think about inheritance you know in the news you might find out that there are people who are who are going against maybe their own family members in order to get the inheritance they're trying to knock people off to inherit the money. Here, it's like God doesn't even need to deal with any of that stuff. He says, no, you have been, you have been chosen to inherit this, and I will preserve you until you get it. It's kept. I'm keeping it for you. You don't need to worry. It's kept in heaven for you. This reminds us that our hopes ought to be tied up with Jesus. And in him, we can be confident, we can be secure in any of the persecution, the mockery that you face because you claim Christ hear the words of john 14 jesus says let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms sounds like inheritance doesn't it you can inherit a mansion if it were not so would i have told you that i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and will take you to myself that where i am you may be also Again, we've seen here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again. What is the gain that we have? It is to a living hope. It is to an inheritance. And point four, it is to a salvation. Point four, the official title, you can call it Christian hope is certain. Christian hope is certain. We've been born to a salvation. It is certain because as verse five says there, we have been born to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. To a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Here the hope is described as a salvation. This is deliverance metaphor. But this salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Is speaking of the return of Jesus Christ. Where he finally comes to right all wrongs. To judge the wicked and then to bring in final salvation to his people. The return of Christ is a huge theme in 1 Peter This is the end to which our hopes are fixed. Christ's return here is to spark faithful obedience, Peter is going to say. The return of Christ is what brings us comfort, he's going to argue. But this future salvation, friends, is ready for you. It is poised to be disclosed. Christ has already gone to prepare this place. The inheritance is already set aside. The legal documents have already been signed by his very own blood he has reserved it and due time friends according to his good timing he will in fact redeem it christian this is your hope as jesus said i will one day come again and on that day when the heavens break open onto this dark world and the clouds part and as jesus said i will indeed take you to myself that where i am you may be also Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to inheritance, and to a salvation where we have forgiveness of sins, where all of the stuff that can be done to us is counted as loss for the sake of all of the gain in the gospel. In Jesus' words and in our passage, we see how hope is kept. In all of this, hope is kept because we know that we are being kept by jesus christ so friends if you want to know how it is to keep hope in the midst of suffering any sort of suffering you to know friends that christ is the one who is keeping you just as god exercises power to keep our inheritance so that so that same power is over us did you notice that in verse four by god's power we are being guarded that is we are untouchable now it doesn't mean that we will never suffer it means that even if we should suffer God preserves the true Christian's faith. Faith and hope remain because God's power is guarding us. No doubt we are to exercise faith. It says there through faith, through faith, the verse says there. But that's not there to get us believing in ourselves. It's not not there to get ourselves to keep on moving, keep on trying, keep the faith in ourselves. No, faith is brought up here because God is a great God. Because he has done everything for his covenant people. That is why we see what God has done in the past. Did you notice that there? What God is doing in the present and what God will do in the future. In the past, God has caused us to be born again. He has raised Jesus from the dead. And in so doing, he has raised our hopes with him. In the present, God is guarding us by his power for the inheritance that is preserved for you. And in the future, God will part the clouds and bring final salvation to his people. With this loving and gracious and merciful, powerful and faithful covenant-keeping God, He's got us covered. And so we believe. And so we trust. We have faith, not in a possibility, but in what is certain. You see, there if we want to keep faith, we realize that God is keeping us. In this world where we experience suffering, confusion, discouragement, Christian hope is kept because God gives Himself to keeping us. And just as Vinny read earlier, our God and Father is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers and who will never let our foot be moved. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, lord you indeed are to be blessed we confess that at times in the midst of suffering and difficult situations lord we want to run away and we want to hide but lord we pray that you would remind us that you are our covenant keeping god and we see your faithfulness to us sinners in jesus christ by your own free grace and your great and rich mercy You sent Christ to die on the cross for sins. Lord, we pray that that gain in the gospel would be so much greater than anything we can lose for the sake of the gospel. And so, Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts and get us to a place where in the midst of suffering, we can still say, Blessed be our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we know that you were faithful to Jesus Christ, the one who suffered. So, Lord, we know, too, that you, of course, will be faithful to all those who are in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that if our hopes, even right now, are down and discouraged, we find them going down because we have lashed ourselves onto the world. Lord, we pray that you would convict us, help us see the fragility of all of the earthly things in order that we might be anchored, secure in heaven because Christ is keeping. Father, we ask you that you would raise our hopes, that you would secure our hopes, you would solidify our hopes in the power of your blood, in the power of your son's crucifixion and his resurrection. In your name we pray. Amen.